Well, once again, happy Palm Sunday, and uh, thank you, Pastor Terrence, for leading us, and Pastor Albert. It is truly a joy if you if you notice that the weather is getting warmer, um, and uh, when I was walking around the service parking lot, those park the parking lot where everyone who serves parks away from here, so that those of you who need a live stream or need to worship from your cars can have these parking spaces, realizing that the lot is getting full each week. And so as, as you guys have received the announcement in the state of California, uh, there is a plan. Let's see how that goes, that by the end of April, vaccination is available to everyone. And it's going to take some time for everyone who willingly wants to get vaccinated to go ahead and do that. But we need to begin to get ready. So as Pastor Terrence uh, said uh, in his announcements, I want to double down and invite you this Friday night um, this is something that, that uh, we're also, he didn't mention, but we also have Mandarin coming in afterwards and Cantonese. They're going to have a combined service. And I, I want you to see how our church is very thoughtful. Uh, you know, it was the Chinese pastors who, who said, uh, let's give the English the earlier time slot. I know some of you might be driving home from work and all that, but uh, the reason for that is that out of all the congregations, the English congregations has the youngest children. And some of the kids need to be in bed, <laughs> uh, you know, by a certain time. And so the Mandarin and Cantonese are, are going to start their service at about 7.30 and uh, probably be a little late, but 7.30, and they won't wrap up till about 8.30, 8.45. So, so you can see how our church, we try to consider each other as, as a church with three congregations, and, and we need to make a lot of considerations that at a certain point, uh, for those of you who feel very comfortable because of health reasons and you need to be worshiping in your car, we want to make that available to you through live stream. But eventually we need to remove some cones. And for everybody else who feels comfortable either sitting outside or sitting in the courtyard or even maybe worshiping um, indoors if we move in, we need to remove some of these cones to allow cars to park next to each other so that we can take in more parking slots. So, so you can see that there's, there's great light at the end of the tunnel. But as we reopen, we're reopening still with the same vision, but being able to reprioritize disciple making, uh, church as family and family as church and the values. And we get to see some of the programs that were just real clunky. And maybe we just did them because we always did them. We begin to see those maybe fade into the ground and we resurrect uh, ministries that are more aligned with our vision. And COVID has been able to give us that opportunity. So I want to rush to give thanks to our pastoral staff for holding the fort down and especially our English team for all that they do. And so thank you, uh, as well as all of our officers, our deacons and our leaders. This Palm Sunday, we are going to continue our series in 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians, we are in chapter 10, and actually all of the pastors decided to go ahead and stick with this passage for this week. We will break from 1 Corinthians next week for an Easter message. And the reason why we want to stick with 1 Corinthians is that today's passage in particular really helps us to navigate through this world. You know, we are a church that believes in the importance of missional engagement. We believe in a balance of holding to conservative Christian values. At the same time, the Lord has not called us to live in our evangelical enclaves, but to engage the non-Christian world with love, charity, and compassion. Our aim is the Great Commission. Our aim is to be winsome, knowing that we cannot win all, but praying that the Lord will use our church to win some to Christ. And so while we stand firm on 
biblical values, we also want to do everything we can to make the gospel available and reasonably attractive to all those who would be willing to listen to the truth. And so this, so I've entitled our time together, the title of this sermon, Surrendered to Christ, Yet Surrounded by Idolatry. I believe that captures the heart of our church, what it means to be a vibrant church, that we want to be people who have surrendered to the King, Jesus, surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, yet we realize that we cannot escape a world that it, where we are surrounded by, in Paul's context, it was idolatry, but in our world, it is just secular values, values that do not encourage or or represent the Judeo-Christian value of the Bible, yet we are called to engage, and we need to be equipped to engage as everyday missionaries. And so I invite you to take God's word and turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23, uh, and we are going to go to chapter 11, verse 1, and we're going to try to tackle as much as we can. Uh, for those of you who are at home this morning, I, I know that uh, you can more easily access your Bible, so please do grab your Bibles. I want you to see these passages with your very own eyes. A paper Bible is going to make that a little more easier for you because today we are really tackling the question of how do we live for Christ in a world of idolatry? That is what Paul helpfully helps us to navigate through. How do we live for Christ in a world surrounded for idolatry. Paul wraps up chapter 10, which is where he gave a strong warning against idol worship and idolatry. Yet Paul was not senseless. He was very sensible. He was very understanding. The great apostle understood that even if your life is wholly surrendered to Christ, that unless you become a hermit, which the Great Commission prohibits us from, that you will be surrounded by a world filled with values, institutions, and cultural practices that challenge your Christian faith. That it's almost unavoidable. And Paul doesn't call us to withdraw, but instead he calls us to be winsome. He understood in his context that if you're going to eat, unless you start your own farm, that is inescapable, but that you are going to purchase and eat food that was at one time sacrificed to idols. So at the tail end of chapter 10, he gets very practical, and he teaches us how to live in our times. Point number one, there are two major points. The, the points today, they aren't, uh, they aren't brand new points. They aren't, aren't shocking points to you to, and to us. But point number one is live for the good of others. I think that is a, this, this part, chapter 10, verse 23, all the way to the first half of verse 29, we are going to spend the most time here. And we're going to spend less time on the point, on point number two. But point number one is live for the good of others. Let me read to you verses 23 and 24. This is a, a summative review uh, verse that Paul gives us here. He says, all things are lawful, but not all, all things are, underline, helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things are, and you want to underline, builds up. So you see here that it under Christian freedom, all things, meaning obviously we're not talking about sinful things, but there's many things that are not a sin. There's many things that you and I can do, but for the sake of our Christian brothers and sisters, as well as for the sake of our neighbor, 
which includes non-Christians, it may not be helpful. It may not build up. And then verse 24, therefore, based on the principle of wanting to be helpful and wanting to build each other up, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So you see that. When it comes to building up, it's a very specific context. Ephesians tells us, the New Testament tells us, that the goal of being the church often is not just to worship Christ, but to build each other up in Christ, not causing each other to stumble, and not tearing each other down with our words, with our attitudes, and with our actions. But then when it comes to loving our neighbor, this extends beyond the four walls of the church, and it says whether someone believes in Christ or not, if we want to love them as our neighbor, that is part of the great commandment. What does it look like to be people who love God? It is to love our neighbor to the best of our ability without compromising our values. That's the tension that we live in. How do we do that? Well, verse 24, let no one seek his own good. So if you seek the good of a fellow Christian brother or sister, and if you seek the good of your neighbor, then often that means you're sacrificing your own comforts and your own freedom. And so the key enemy and the key source of idolatry sometimes, especially for us, is not some foreign temple, but it is our own desires, the comforts that we long for, the, some things that we want to hold on to, what we want. To put others first, it's a challenge to our own heart's idols. Now, some of you might be asking a very reasonable question. When it says all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful, what if you ask and say, hey, what if I do something and it's neutral? What if I do something and, you know, it, it doesn't hurt anybody really, but some people are going to stumble anyways, no matter what I do. So, so, so what about that? And to, to that fair question, if, if you're asking, what if I want to do something, but it, it neither tears down or builds up, right? Meaning it doesn't build anybody up. It doesn't help anyone, but it doesn't hurt anyone either. I would argue that when you read the rest of the New Testament, that we need to be uh, put extra energy into doing things that are not neutral, but aim to build people up. So I don't want you to be mistaken, because I think in our world of personal comforts, and personal desire, and in our culture of individualism, I think a lot of Christians carry that type of apathy. Well, it's not hurting anybody, so why don't I just do it? I'm not going to give you specifics today, but, but you, you see that attitude, right? It doesn't matter if I offend people. I'm not hurting anyone, so why can't I just do it? Well, actually, the New Testament says it's not good enough just to not hurt anybody. We need to take extra Aim, extra, put extra energy into making sure that our words, our actions, and our attitudes go the extra mile to build each other up. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what Jesus did on the cross when he went the extra mile. Right? He didn't have to. He did it. He carried all of our burdens. He was crucified for our sins and he was risen from the dead. And he called his disciples to go the extra mile. And you know that because he calls us not just to love our friends, but to love our enemies. To, to take that call seriously, to love our enemies, that is right in line with Palm Sunday. Jesus was going to the cross not just to die for his friends, 
but to die for his enemies so that his enemies would become his friends. Because he knew that he had to die for them in order for that to happen. That's what I mean by it's not just the goal of the Christian to win our own. But it is, the Christ, it is the idea of Christianity to know that we will not win all, but we need to be winsome if we can. Not purposely offending people if we can help it. Yes, not apologizing for the truth, but being winsome so the Lord would use us to win some to Christ. And so this is a simple explanation of the first two verses. Now let's go to verses 25 to 26 where where we consider further how our attitudes and actions might impact others. Right? So taking the principle that we see in places like 1 Thessalonians 5.11 where it exhorts us, encourage one another and build each other up as we await the return of Christ. We need to be actively doing that, not just waiting for Jesus to come back, but waiting while trying to win people to Christ. Verse 25 and 26 says, what happens if you're in a situation where you can't avoid non-Christian values? Right, look at verse, what it says in verses 25 and 26. It says, well, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So back in Paul's day, most of the meat sold in the market had been butchered by priests of various temples. This was meat sacrificed to idols. This is very clear. But there's a big difference between eating meat while you're part of a idol worship service that's considered worship so you're not really having a meal there you're eating as part of a worship service of a foreign idol that's very different from just eating food so if you go to the market and if you go around asking every single vendor hey uh where that piece of ribeye right there was that what temple is that from i mean you have the freedom to do that but it makes you not that missional I think every vendor would be like, that, that guy's a Christian? That, that guy's annoying. Right? Again, you're just buying food. That's not worshiping an idol. And you're just eating. And so Paul's freeing your conscience. Now, of course, you have the freedom. You can go around and question the source. And there are times where we need to. Obviously, you don't want to support financially something as obvious as the porn industry or, or an evil corporation. Or if there's actually a company that comes out and says, we exist to destroy the Christian conscience. That's why we exist. Then obviously, you have options. Don't buy from that company. But what happens when you go into the marketplace and you pick up a bag of chips and you look at every single ingredient? Where does the salt come from? Does the company that distributed the salt, what about the buyer? What about the person, the, the production company, the dis distribution company? What about by the time that bag of chips gets onto the market and you pick it up, how can you guarantee with consistency that not just that bag of chips, but the vegetables that you have in your shopping cart or everything else that you have, including your credit card company that you're going to pay for with a credit card, how can you prove to me that there's not one person that owns one of those companies that doesn't actually worship Satan. You can't. And so we're talking about practicality, consistency. But beyond that, Paul's saying, if we want to win some, as long as we are not worshiping idols, we're just eating, then that's what it means, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Meaning all of these pieces of, of, of steak and ribeye, 
and vegetables. So you can argue, well, why not just eat, not eat meat then? Uh, this doesn't apply to me. I'm vegetarian. Well, no, your vegetables come from certain, certain farms. So again, unless you're going to grow your own farm, it's really hard to escape this reality. It says everything that you eat is from the Lord and the fullness thereof. So if you're giving thanks to the Lord for the food, then it's no longer, it's no longer being sacrificed to idols, even though it was once the case. And that was the case in Paul's day. One commentator says that many times, by the time you have uh, stacks of bacon or like, you know, piles of bacon, let's just say, right, uh, that that vendor has mixed together the meat that's on display that if you asked him, he might not even be able to distinguish that this piece of bacon came from that temple, but this one came from the, the Christian guy's farm. Like he wouldn't be able to tell you. Uh, so then you go to verses 25 and 26 where Paul says, So eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. In other words, just buy it and eat it. And don't be such a legalistic, judgmental jerk. Just eat it. And then it goes back, Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Eat it because it belongs to God. And that's the big difference that we understand. So Paul tells the Christian how to be winsome and yet frees our conscience to live in a world where sometimes we cannot actually reasonably question every single source. Let me give you a very practical uh, illustration that I think applies to us where I do think we can use some discernment. In today's marketplace, it's nearly impossible to ensure that all of your purchases come from God-honoring companies. But there are some options. Let's leave the ancient world and let's consider the question of, I want to call this reverse cancel culture. Right? As conservative Christians, we reject cancel culture, but sometimes I see Christians doing reverse cancel culture where that type of boycotting, it's impossible to be morally and ethically consistent. For example, recently Amazon.com canceled a certain book due to its conservative values. And so now uh, some Christians are, are wanting to boycott Amazon. And I would say, well, in this case, if you have options, if you have options, so if you're buying Christian books, you, you can certainly... You can certainly go to uh, christianbooks.com or Westminster Books, or you can buy from a, a, a Christian publisher. But if you're seriously wanting to be consistent, remember the book that Amazon canceled that became, uh, became a widespread news. It was a book that took a conservative view on the transgenderism movement. And, and if you're going to do that, and if you want to say that this makes me a better Christian because I'm applying reverse cancel culture, uh, then you have to get rid of your iPhone. You should get rid of your Apple products, your Disney, anything Disney related, your Facebook and Instagram that you're going to go and protest on, uh, as well as your, uh, your Microsoft and your Google. And so whatever you're going to buy on, you're basically going to cancel everything that you own. Right, Because if you want to be consistent, all of these companies actually are taking the same stance as Amazon. And by the way, you need to cancel the MBA. And so you see sometimes that Christians are just as ridiculous and not very winsome when we apply reverse cancel culture that we can actually be consistent on. And I think that's a very exact, uh, exacting uh, application of what Paul's teaching. He's saying, yes, 
There are times where you want to boycott. And there are times where you might want to reverse boycott. So any time when I hear someone criticize Chick-fil-A, I make sure that I eat Chick-fil-A that week. I, but that's, that doesn't make me a better Christian. It's just me, uh, you know, wanting to, to enjoy Chick-fil-A and saying I love Chick-fil-A, right? Um, yesterday, I was cheering for Oral Roberts. I know the Oral Roberts uh, is a different theological camp than Baptist, but, but uh, I saw an article that came out where, where they were saying uh, Oral Roberts has, Christ- has a Christian doctrinal statement. And because of their Christian doctrinal statement that says there's certain practices that are prohibited that uh, relate to sexuality, that the NCAA should not allow Oral Roberts to compete in the March Madness uh, tournament. And so right there, I said, well, I went to Christian college. I understand that they have these doctrinal statements. Not everybody has to go to a Christian college. So right there, I was cheering for Oral Roberts. No offense against anybody from Arkansas. Right, but uh, but I was cheering for Oral Roberts, and uh, they didn't win. But so, but that's different, right? I, I'm just saying, okay. So there are times where we can cheer and we can support purposely Christian companies or companies that uphold Christian values. But we have to be consistent. We have to be consistent, and that's why uh, Paul actually frees us that we don't always have to boycott everything that has an evil source and evil bent because. It's nearly impossible. Again, you have to go back to your house and throw away your car. I don't think your, uh, your car manufacturer uh, supports our Christian values either, right? So, so unless, again, unless we're going to just disappear and, and die, I think it's very hard to be consistent. But I love how this passage frees us. Now go to verse 27. Verse 27, it says, but if one of the unbelievers, so here's an exception. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. So now, Paul takes it and says, it's not just about going into the marketplace. It's not just about what you boycott and what you decide to just be reasonable about. But now we're talking about evangelism. Boy, I wish... I wish the non-Christians would invite me into their homes. Once they find out I'm a pastor, they stop talking to me. You know, it's like, what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. Oh, okay. You know, nice knowing you. Um, sometimes I, I, I'm not ashamed of Sometimes I say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm an educator. <laughs> I, I, I teach. What do you teach? Uh, Old Testament, New Testament studies. Uh, what else do you teach? I'm, I'm, I'm a lawyer. What do you mean you're a lawyer? You're an attorney? No, I study the Old Testament law. You know, whatever, uh, as far as we can get. Right, as far as we can get. But if a non-Christian invites you over and they know you're a Christian, you're going to see in the next verse they know you're a Christian. Right? Uh, if if one of the unbeliever invites you and they put out all this food in front of you, I, I, Paul's saying it's not very winsome if you begin to question the moral legitimacy of their food. If you ask them, hey, hey thank you for inviting me, but before I eat this. Was this bought from that temple over there? Because, you know, I'm a Christian. Um, and, you know, I, I, I just got off my high horse and uh, I'm not going to eat that. Now, it's different, right? Consider this. It's different a couple chapters ago when you're talking with fellow Christians. When you're talking with fellow Christians, there's an understanding. Hey, we're both Christians. You used to be Jewish. You can't eat this meat. 
We both understand the gospel. So I'm not, so let's not cause each other to stumble. So let's not eat this meat that was sacrificed to idols. Let's agree. As fellow Christians, we're not going to cause each other to stumble. Right? But now you're talking about the non-Christian. Someone who doesn't have the same foundation. And they're trying to be hospitable to you. So if they don't say anything, and if you're not allergic to the food, then just eat it. And so he's talking about, once again, how do we be missional? How do we live in a world where you cannot avoid? If you want to reach anyone for Christ, you cannot avoid sometimes that you are going to, for a lack of better terms, you're going to drink of the culture. You're you're going to drink a little bit of it, right? So as long as you are not worshiping an idol. Now, there is an exception. Look at verses 28 to 29. There is an exception. And this is what I mean by your dinner guest in this context or your dinner host knows that you are a believer. And in this context, they know that you're a conservative believer. Look at verse 28. But it says, but, here's the exception. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, for the sake of of for the sake of conscience i do not mean your conscience because you have christian freedom but his what does that mean well here's the exception that eat whatever your host your non-christian host puts out before you unless they actually tell you because they're trying to look out for you then then don't eat it even if you're okay eating it don't eat it why because of what what needs to be explained. One commentator explains that in this situation, the food's history did matter. Why does it matter? Because the person who pointed out to you, whether they are a non-believing Gentile or they are a Christian of weaker conscience, apparently felt that a Christian eating such meat would be compromising his allegiance to Christ. Right? So, so if a non-Christian tells you and says, hey, oh, by the way, I, I knew that you're a Christian and I knew that you're coming over for dinner. So I purposely made sure uh, that this meat, this ribeye that I'm going to serve you, I made sure that I didn't buy it from that temple. Uh, the last thing you want to say to this non-Christian is say, well, you know what? Uh, it's okay. It doesn't matter. I-, I could eat all of that idol worship food. You know, the new covenant allows me to. No, no, you just simply say in that moment, thank you. Thanks for being considerate of me. You know what? Um, I, I appreciate you doing that for me. Okay? I appreciate you doing that for me. I, I appreciate you looking out for my Christian values. That's what you want to do. Okay? Uh, in another context, if in the same way, if that host says, here's two dishes. Uh, I know you're a Christian. I want you to eat this one, but I want to warn you, don't eat Dish number two, because that meat was sacrificed to idols. You, you want to say thank you, right? You don't want to say, well, it doesn't matter. I have Christian freedom. Because they may not understand how that works. So let me explain further why Paul would, would tell you to refrain, even if you're comfortable eating. And let me illustrate with my own um, personal example. Uh, I, I played a lot of basketball um, not always with the great attitude, you know, but I played a lot of basketball. I, I, I'm not really good anymore. I, I can't shoot to save my life. Uh, but, um, but back when I used to play a little more, uh, I would play with non-Christians, and that would be like the time where uh, I would hear the most profanity because when you're a pastor, uh, people don't curse in front of you too much. Um, but, you know, 
oftentimes I play basketball, and some of these are Christians too, <laughs> and they just run their mouth. They curse, and then they're like, oh, sorry, Pastor. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why they, they have to say that. And you know what? I, I made a mistake. And here's my mistake. Wanting to be more loving, I, I would say, oh, it's okay. Just don't worry. Just be yourself, man. And, and in my mindset, I was thinking I don't want them to see me as a real judgmental pastor. Uh, they, they, could, they could hear the judgmental Hanley uh, preach on hell any, any week, right? I, that's, I don't think that's being judgmental. I think that's preaching the truth. But they want to hear that, listen to a sermon. But, you know, we're playing basketball. Um, you know, you run your mouth. Um, you know, if you're not causing me to stumble, it's okay. Just be yourself, right? Well, this passage is saying that I should have said, you know, thank you for being considerate of me. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I would really appreciate it if you didn't speak crudely in front of me. So thanks for looking out. Same thing uh, when I was younger, I, I worked a secular job. And, and, and I, would, I would work with people, and they would say some really crude things. Then they would find out I was studying to be a pastor. And right away, they would just start apologizing. Or, or, they, or they would just, like, they want to say something, a dirty joke. They would go away from me. And... And, and, and sometimes when, when they would catch themselves, once again, they would apologize to me. Like, oh, sorry, dude. And, and, and I used to say, you know what, just be yourself. I'm not judging you. And again, this passage challenges me that if I understood the principle, I would have just said, thank you. In, in, in the best way possible, without sounding like I'm better than them or, or judging them. And here's the reason why. Paul's principle is mainly, you never want to give the non-Christian that you want to evangelize to, license to practice, speak, or live in a way where if they got saved, you would treat them differently. That if they got saved, you would say, oh, by the way, I was okay with it before, but now you're a Christian, so now you can't do that anymore. You see what I'm saying? Especially when they are volunteering the apology. So, so once again, let's talk real. You, you, you're, you're at, you're at, you're at a, a work and there's someone who's just speaking, uh, whether it's, it's, it's really crude comments. You don't, you don't want to give them the impression that, hey, I'm okay with you speaking this way because you're not saved. But now that you're a Christian, uh, I'm not okay with it. But if you walk away or something, or if you claim that you're not a Christian, then I'll be okay with it again? That's weird, right? As Christians, we are not okay with with racist comments. We're not okay with sexist comments. We're not okay with crude talk. We're not okay with profanity. We are not okay. We are not okay with hate. We're not okay with, with sinful behavior, whether that person is a Christian or not. But the difference is we know that when someone's not yet a believer, we have more grace in the sense where we don't expect them to live as if they're born again. But if they offer to us a sensitive comment, making aware that their comments may have offended us, then we thank them for them, for that. Because if we're able to lead them to Christ, we hope that they would change, that Jesus would change them. Hopefully that's clear. I, I hope I beat that to the ground. Uh, let's move to point number two. Point number two. So the first point was how do we navigate through a non-Christian world when we're surrounded by non-Christians and non-Christian values? It is to live with for the good of others right with the ultimate goal of people coming to christ but point number two is live for the glory of god live for the glory of god look at the second part of verse 29 
And it says, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Now, this, this paragraph here, there are um, six interpretations in some of the better commentaries of how to interpret this. I'm going to give you, <laughs> uh, I'm going to give you uh, what I feel like is the uh, best exegetical explanation but even at that, you're going to have to follow me a little bit, okay? What Paul is doing is that he's basically using a rhetorical device. And so in, from, verse, uh, from verse 23 to verse 27, he's talking about food that was sacrificed to idols and how to engage, especially in the non-Christian market and in the non-Christian home. And then in verses 28 and half of 29, he gives a, an exception. So it's like a tangent. It's like if you're having a conversation and you're saying, this is how we should act. Oh, except for this, except for this. In this occasion, you know, then you would act differently. But, okay, get, but apart from that, let's go back to what I was talking about. That's what he's doing. So, so it's as if you can take out verse 28 and 29a and set that aside. And so verse 29b is connected back to verse 27. Okay, so he made a tangent. Now he's coming back to the topic of eating meat that was sacrificed to idols when a non-Christian host puts that before you. And he's saying, for why should my liberty be, be determined by someone else's conscience? Meaning even though you have freedom, uh, you don't want to cause other people to stumble, but you have Christian freedom. He says, if I partake with thankfulness... Right? So apart from the exception, he, he's saying you can eat whatever is there that you buy in the marketplace. If I, as long as you, you give thanks before you eat it, you're no longer worshiping idols. Now that's logical. In the, the non-Christian, um, the commentary uses the word pagan. I try to be careful uh, how I use that nowadays because it's not necessary. I can just say non-Christian. Right? In the non-Christian temples... When people partook of the food, it's like me and you taking the Lord's Supper. It's part of a worship service. When you exit that context and you put that meat into Albertsons or Vaughn's and you buy that and you take it home and when you say, dear God, thank you for this food that you've graciously provided for me, you're no longer under idol worship. That's what he's saying. Okay, you've just said grace for your food. You've given credit to Jesus in the name of Jesus, to God the Father who created all things. That's what he's saying in verse 30. Is that, is that clear? He's saying, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of for, for which I give thanks? So you've just cleared yourself. Now verses 31 to 33, it says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. So whatever you do, as long as your motivation is not idol worship, as long as your motivation is glorifying God and giving thanks to God, he says, then, then you, you can eat, you can drink, you can do it. And verse 32, give no offense to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Right? And so it's very clear. Whatever you eat or drink or do anything, our goal is to glorify God. Verse 32, living for the glory of God cannot be separated for living for the good of others. So that's what it's saying, is that your main goal, if you're going to you know, exercise Christian freedom or, or forfeit your freedom, is to win other people. 
So this goes back to when Paul said, to the Jews, I became a Jews. To the Greeks, I became a Greeks. To the weaker Christian brother, I was willing to uh, forfeit my Christian freedom. Uh, to the strong, I, I, I didn't judge people for eating meat in a certain way. Right? He's saying that, that if you want to glorify God, to do all things for the glory of God, involves living for the good of others. Inward worship leads to a product of outward love for others and for our neighbor. And then you go to verse 33, and he says, Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, stop there. Obviously, Paul's not talking about compromising values. Obviously, Paul's not talking about living in sin, right? There's a, there's a, there's a part where you draw a line as a Christian, right? You draw a line, and, and at a certain point, you're willing to lose friends. You're willing to be persecuted, right, because you're not willing to go into sin. But it says, just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So where do we get this impulse of missional flexibility, cultural adaptability? How can we argue that in this passage, Paul's aim is really just to win people to Christ? Right here. When he sums up the passage, he says, that's his aim. It's not seeking his own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. He wants people to be saved unto Christ. And then in, in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, In that context, be imitators of me, Corinthians. Forfeit your Christian rights for the sake of the weaker Christian brother. Forfeit your Christian freedom, sometimes for the sake of the non-Christian. Use your Christian freedom at times to win people to Christ so that we are more winsome, so that Christ would use us to win some. Right, that's where that winsome, winsome comes from. That of many, that they may be saved. Not all. We know that not everybody will worship Christ and come to Christ, but hopefully many. Now, Paul reminds his readers of imitating him. Now, I want to say a word before we wrap up, uh, and soon you'll be, uh, we'll be done. Okay, so just, just bear with me a little bit. That in the very next verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1, he calls us to be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, I understand in most cultures, none of us would speak this way. Uh, I, I think it's pretty arrogant. It's pretty arrogant. It sounds arrogant. Even when we write a book and say, hey, you know, I, I can teach you five principles about how to be holy. <laughs> okay. Okay, Mr. Holy, who said you could write the book on holiness? I thought that was Jesus, right? But then if that was the case, then R.C. Sproul would have never written his book on holiness. So at the end of the day, when Paul says, be imitators of me as, as I am of Christ, the immediate context of imitation here points back to Jesus' sacrifice and his crucifixion. Christ gave up his freedom and temporarily forfeited his rights to die for sinners like you and me. So that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, imitate me in the context of me looking to Christ. How Christ was willing to give up his rights temporarily and forfeit his comforts and his freedom and his advantage. Why? So the many would be saved. So in that sense, be imitators of me as I imperfectly, Paul says, try to imitate Christ who perfectly gave up his rights and forfeited his Christian freedoms while never falling into idolatry. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, as he was strong enough 
to reach out to the tax collectors, to dine with the sinners, to reach out to those who are marginalized in society. And he didn't, he wasn't dragged into sin. Instead, he, he was able to bring them into holiness. Christ went into the other places. He went into places where good, pious Jews would never go into. He went where nobody could go because only he could save them. And he calls us to be that type of missionary, yet hold our values. Hold our values, right? And this is the tension that we live in. And so, so we are to imitate Christ. And we are to actually, in a humble way, in a reasonable way, because our vision is the Great Commission to make disciples, we are, disciple-making is the business of imitation. If, if you are calling people to be disciples, and if you're discipling people, if you're a disciple of someone because that person follows Christ, then this passage comes right there, right in line. Is that in many ways, we are wanting people to imitate our imperfect efforts, and we want to imitate others because this is what Christ calls us to do, and that's what Paul's talking about. Now, the big idea this morning answers the question of how do we live, how do we navigate our lives as people who are surrendered to Christ yet surrounded by idolatry or non-Christian values. How? Well, Christ freed us to imitate him. He freed us to imitate him by living for the good of others and the glory of God. And we've seen that in our first two points. We do so by living for God, uh, I mean living for the good of others and living for the glory of God. Let me pray for us. Bow with me, please. Father, we are in a time where, as those who want to hold to evangelical doctrine, we know, Lord, that our faith is challenged. You do not call us to retreat into our evangelical enclaves. You do not, you do not call us to be monks or hermits. You call us, Lord, to make disciples of all nations, to engage the unbeliever, to be salt and light in society, you call us, Lord, not to be uh, of this world, but to be in this world. You call us to be a city on a hill where our light is not hidden. You call us, Lord, to love our neighbor as ourselves. It is, being, is becoming increasingly difficult at times for us, Lord, to be faithful Christ followers at the same time be welcomed into non-Christian spaces. Lord, help us, Lord to balance the wisdom of how we can be at the same time your disciple makers, uncompromising in faith, yet everyday missionaries. Help us to understand what it means to be missional. Give us the tools to be winsome with our speech, with our attitudes, with our actions, so that you would use us to win some unto yourself. Father, I pray that we would be a church, a vibrant church of disciple makers. Be with us next week, Lord, Easter, as we may have the grace of some who are not church, come join us, whether online or in person. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would anoint my lips, that you would, engage, you would allow me to engage with the unbelieving seeker next week. Father, I pray that as we come to celebrate your resurrection, that we would be reminded mind, that if it wasn't for you, that we would, want, we would also still be lost. But you died for our sins, and you called us to yourself. And you resurrected so that we can share a new life. 
Help us, Lord, to be that type of church that is impactful in our society. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.